Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the State of the Universe. It's good to be back. Now, you don't know this. You'll know this in a second. In the last month, since we did it last episode, I almost died. I almost, and you might say, Brendan, how did you die? Did you fall off a building? Did you get hit by a car? Did you get COVID? None of those things. You see, I died, nearly died, in a very mundane way. An infection of the throat. And you know what you need in order to do a podcast? A functioning throat. So I didn't have one of those things. Couldn't do any episodes. Nearly died. Infection's probably probably going to come back next week, and I might die. When you're hearing this, I might be dead. I don't know. You know, and you don't know. No one knows. Anyway, welcome to the State of the Universe. It's good to be back. Episode 86, featuring the great Dr. Dan Hooper. Dan Hooper's a friend of the show, senior scientist and head of the theoretical astrophysics group at the Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory as well as an associate professor in the Department of Astronomy and Astrophysics at the University of Chicago. He wrote a great, a couple great books, most recently, At the Edge of Time. There will be a link for that down below. But we have Dan Hooper on. And you might say, Brendan, you had Dan Hooper on like two months ago. You know, it's great to listen to Dan Hooper and you talk, but what are we doing here? And the reason for that is that recently there's been some exciting news coming out of Fermilab, and I, I wanted to get Dan's take on it. Now, this was actually recorded a month ago in the direct aftermath of this huge discovery in physics. Um, but, unfortunately, I didn't have throat capabilities to go ahead and record this intro and the outro and the bonus episode and all that stuff. So couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. But you know what soothed me during this time, during this period? What really calmed me down, what helped me get rest, what minimized my pain? Premium Jane CBD. Go to premiumjane.com universe and check out all their products. You get 20% off with codename universe. Or just go to premiumjane.com universe and, and that code will automatically be applied. I love the tinctures. My throat would hurt, you know, on the verge of death. And I would take a little premium Jane CBD and I would be calm and I would be relaxed. And that's how it works. That's how it works. Go to premiumjane.com universe. Check it out. And uh, it doesn't get you high. It's just CBD. I personally, listen, they legalized weed here recently. I'm not a big weed guy. All right, when I was 13, big weed guy or kid, big weed kid. Nowadays, not a big weed guy. Uh, I, I don't like the, I don't like the, I don't like thinking about some shit I said three years ago. You know, that's that's weed for me. I smoke weed, I think, like, damn, I was talking to Jared a couple years ago, and I said some dumb shit. That's not what CBD does. CBD, non-psychoactive, it's just going to, you know, help you relieve some, some muscle pain, help you get some sleep, all the good stuff. They pay me to do a 15-second ad. I just did a two-minute ad, all right? So you're welcome, Premium Jane CBD. Love you guys. Appreciate you supporting the show. Now... We had Dan Hooper on to talk about the G-2 result. Now, if you don't know what G-2 is, you're going to have to listen to find out. But the point is, there's an experiment going on at Fermilab that is incredibly in, has incredibly interesting results so far. And this, the interesting results could very well be indicative of the fact that the standard model of particle physics, which we've talked about on here many times, the model that, that has held up so well in so many experiments may, may in fact not be complete there is hints of new physics so we discuss all of that stuff 
in this episode. I encourage you, if you like this episode, you like to listen to Dan Hooper, go check out Why This Universe. It's his podcast co-hosted with the great Shalma Wegsman, who will be on the show one of these days. Now, with that being said, people, please support the Patreon, support the PayPal, support the YouTube, support the everything. All right, we're getting a new studio set up and a new house. Just bought a house, so my uh, you know apartment dwellers don't have to listen to me scream into a microphone about science anymore. Now I can do it in the comfort of my own home. I have a crazy neighbor. He might try to kill me. That's okay, though, because we're going to pump these podcasts out until he murders me in my house. So with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for being here. Please support the show any way you know how. And we will have a bonus episode where we discuss all this UFO news on the Patreon, on the premium subscription services. Apple Podcast is launching like a premium thing, so we're going to see if we can get looked, hooked up with that uh, in the next week. I don't know if it's launched or if it's going to be annoying to get that hooked up with, but we're going to do a bonus episode on the UFOs. It's going to be a, you know, a paywalled episode, which we haven't done a lot of, but we're going to start. So to those people subscribe to the Patreon, shout out to y'all. You're going to get to hear this me talk about UFOs for an hour. So that's how we're doing it. All right, so move along. And don't forget to rate the show five stars on Apple Podcasts. This is a grade A podcast. We all know it's a grade A podcast. All right, A plus even, you know. So rate the show five stars, write a review that says grade A. If you don't do that, you're terrible. I mean, you're just simply a terrible person, you know. Some people are, are good people. You know, some people are just naturally good people. And then some people are evil. And if you don't rate the show five stars on Apple Podcasts and write this is a grade A podcast, you're skewing evil. You know, so we, we we're gonna want to address that. Now, with that being said, enjoy, and we are out. So, and I appreciate you doing this on such short notice. Um, oh yeah, because there is. First off, uh, you know, let's kind of just jump into it. I'm so curious, what was the buzz like around Fermilab this week and the last week, and and um, what what was the vibe like? I mean, f- let's back up. I mean, like for years. Right. Um, every time I ran into guys who were working on the G minus two experiment at Fermi Lab in the cafeteria or at the user center, which is like our our uh, on lab bar, um, you know, you like, how's it going? When are we going to hear the first results? Uh, you know, w- what's the what's the skinny? And uh, you know, we've been kind of expecting the results would be out sometime soon for something like a year. And uh, when we finally got word that it would be on, you know, April 7th, you know, we, uh, you know, we all, you know, got very excited. Rumors started to spread, most of which weren't very reliable. They were all kind of all over the place as, as these things go. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then uh, just like everybody else, I sat down to watch this talk and I saw the New York Times story break and we saw the answer. And uh, it was, uh, it was like I said on Twitter, it was like Christmas morning, you know, it was just uh, like how I felt when I was seven on Christmas morning. Yeah. So we'll get into the specifics of the, of the discovery here in a second. Um, But I'm very interested in that. You said um, that you, you had no idea what the announcement was because I figured that the rumors that would have floated would have been, it's interesting to me that they kept it under wraps because normally these big, these big projects are tough to keep under wraps. Um, you know, it, this stuff just gets out. I saw a funny Twitter comment, which was like uh, something along the lines of, you know, astronomers weren't working on this project because it didn't get leaked, uh, which, <laughs> you know, could potentially be the case. But, um, you know, it's uh, that's interesting to me that you had no clue what to expect other than a few rumors that were pro- probably wrong. Well, like I heard one rumor and then I learned that the origin of that rumor was like someone trying to guess. 
Mm-hmm. So, like, obviously, they didn't have any insight that any no one else had. You know, every, I mean, they, they were just as in the dark as as I was. Yeah. So, um, I think a lot of the rumors are not coming from the collaboration, but from just people kind of guessing and speculating, trying to outthink the situation. But yeah, yeah, they they were very tight lipped. They were very professional. Um, in the end, um, I found out like everybody else uh, on announcement day. Yeah, that's cool. I was watching the announcement. I kept freezing. You know, I, it was cool to see like. Uh, this is a weird thing to to like, but I love when there's a scientific announcement and the website goes down because that's actually like g- good evidence that this is a, something that like a wide range of people are interested in, you know, cause I couldn't even get on like the Fermilab G2 experiment website. It was just like, you know, error, error, error down. I assume it was due to traffic and not a coincidence. Uh, so I, I always love to see that. Cause you see that with LIGO, you see that with, um, um, you know, so many other announcements uh, that the website just crashes and, you know, although it's a bad thing, it, it's it's an in, it's indicative to me as a communicator of science that good things are happening and that a lot of people care. Yeah, I've never bought this narrative that the public isn't interested in science. Um, when the public is exposed to science, I see no lack of enthusiasm. Oh, of course, yeah. I mean, especially like the all the articles you read, like sort of the the articles that describe this to the public. Uh, something as simple as like quantum foam. I feel like if if nine if you did a survey and you like threw buzzwords and you said, are you interested in learning more about and then you put a, a buzzword and that buzzword is quantum foam, I think a huge swath of people is going to be like, hell yes, tell me about quantum foam. And, you know, you get the same thing. I mean, like, OK, I, I don't know if you've noticed this yet with downloads on, on your podcast, uh, Why This Universe, great show, everyone should go listen. But I noticed this on mine. It's like, there's a there's a like a a secret um, method to getting downloads, which is using the buzzwords in the in the title. You know, like if I put black hole in the title, I immediately see a bump because people see that in a feed. They're like black holes, yes, or supersymmetry, yes, string theory, yes. And you know, there's all these ideas um, that just captivate even when people don't know what the hell they are. You know, people have no idea what quantum foam is. I don't even know what quantum foam is. But I hear quantum foam and I'm like, sign me up. Let's listen about quantum foam. So is that something that you've seen? Yeah, I mean, not just in podcast titles or something, but in general, a way to bring people in is to, you know, use these kind of uh, exciting, as you call them, buzzwords. And and it helps if they've kind of heard them before, but feel like they wouldn't want to know more about it. So, you know, just about everybody's heard of black holes, but the vast majority of those people don't really know what one is. Right. They know some things about it, but you can like definitely teach them things about black holes mm-hmm. in a you know, half an hour, hour conversation, um, you know, or the big bang or dark matter or the Higgs boson, all these things, uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, a- you know, appetite out there to, to learn more about. Um, they've just gotten enough of a taste of it to want to learn more. Yeah. No, and, and, you know, we're both trying to tap into those people. So let's do it right now. Let's, Good. um, you know, there's all this buzz, the, the, uh, G2 experiment, huge results this week. So let's kind of G minus two that that's not a hyphen. It's a minus sign. What did I say? G2. I meant yeah. G minus two. I, good, I, good. I use the hashtag a bunch of times. I should know this by now. <laughs> um, I saw you use the hashtag, uh, and you, and you did, you used it wrong. That was, a, that was a good, uh, 
that was like, I could sense your frustration because you can't edit a tweet. You know what I mean? You did hashtag G minus symbol too. And Twitter's like, nah, not going to, not going to do that one. So you had to re yeah, that was fun. Uh, Twitter still not having an edit button is, um, is fun for me. Um, cause I mess <laughs> up every single tweet and then I have to delete them and, and redo them. So, because I can't fathom the idea of leaving a, like a typo in, in like something I publish. So I sent so many or tweeted so many things over the last few days that I didn't get too frustrated by that, that particular one going wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like, I could sense your um, excitement because you, you know, you kind of mentioned before the show started, we were chatting and you mentioned that Twitter's not really your platform. And, you know, Twitter's not really my platform either in terms of like the way I think it's a terrible way of communicating. You know, I think that there's actually like interesting studies to be done. I would like to see a psychological study where you take 40 people and you put them in a room and you make them talk about complex ideas that have very nuanced solutions and you make them um, talk to one another by only using sentences with less than 140 characters, like literally make them or, or 280 or whatever the limit is, make them abide by that and see what happens. And I suspect that the uh, conversation would very quickly devolve into chaos. So I think that Twitter is like manufactured chaos in that way. And I would love to see if any psychologist is out there doing that, please point me. So a listener, please point me to that. Of course, with Twitter, you can also include links to things that are more substantive. Yes. So, you know, like I I use Twitter to find out what papers people are talking about. Mm -hmm. And if they're interesting, I click on the link and read the paper. Yeah. Um, But there is an awful lot of Twitter that isn't doing that. They're having what should be substantive conversations in, you know, hundreds of character tweets at a time. And I'm that I'm the person, you know, I'm that guy, you know, I'm going to get in trouble with Twitter one of these days because you just can't like the like the um, a nuanced idea and like far right or far left ideology on Twitter is like just one wrong one, like seven characters away from one another because of the, the shortness of the sentences that you're allowed to use. You know what I mean? So it's like it's so easy to like accidentally mischaracterize your own idea and it's a it's a tough spot to even like do science outreach so yes it's you use it intelligently is my point my broad point here is you use twitter right and to see you giddy on twitter (laughs) was was cool like it that's actually how i even knew the g minus two experiment was going to be um something that i should like tune into it was literally your tweet that was like i can't get the stupid smile on my face that was the tweet that made me go, oh, shit, I should tune in to this uh, to this press conference, because if if Dan Hooper can't get a smile off his face, this has to be some fun stuff. So um, that was my broader point is like, all right, then that tweet did its job. Yeah, you were you were um, you were you were showing an emotion on Twitter that I hadn't seen before. And I sensed a lot of uh, a lot of giddiness, even though you were explicit about it. So um, so let, let's get into why you were so uh, so happy about it. Um, Let's start with, uh, I guess, the most basic. Before we even talk about what the experiment is, let's talk about um, sort of the fundamental aspect of the experiment. Let's talk about muons. So what is a muon? When someone hears hears the word muon, what should they be imagining or picturing? Yeah, so we have this wonderful theory called the standard model of particle physics. And it describes all of the interactions and particle types that we see in the universe, with the exception of gravity. We really don't understand gravity yet. And that, you know, this theory describes six particles we call quarks, four particles we call bosons, or five really, and then another six particles we call leptons. And one of those leptons is the well-known electron, 
And another one is a heavier cousin of the electron that we call the muon. So just like the electron, this thing carries electric charge. Just like the electron, it has a certain amount of intrinsic angular momentum. It spins. And uh, unlike an electron, it's a little heavier. It's like 200 times heavier. And unlike an electron, it's unstable. If I have a room full of muons and wait a millionth of a second, about half of them will be gone. So these are very short-lived, heavy versions of electrons. Okay, so now let's get into the uh, experiment. Why, first off, um, can you just briefly describe what the experiment does? And then I have a whole array of, of things I'm confused about and we can clear them all up. Yeah, so what we're trying to measure or what they're trying to measure, I'm a theorist, I don't actually try to measure anything, much less succeed at it. But what the G-2 collaboration set out to measure and I believe has is they want to know if you put a muon in a magnetic field how does it respond to that magnetic field? So things like muons spin like a top when you put them in a magnetic field. And the rate at which they spin is related to this quantity called the magnetic moment of the muon. So what they're trying to do is to measure that number, the magnetic moment. They do this by putting uh, thousands of muons at a time in the circular ring, and they kind of just fly around the circle. And the very strong magnetic field that is applied allows them to kind of process like a top as they spin around. And they measure that rate very, very precisely over many, many revolutions and uh, observing many, many different muons for a long period of time. Now, how are these, uh, how are these muons created? They have such short lifespans, as you mentioned. Um, they're de they decay quickly. How are, they, uh, how are they manufactured and put into the, the, the ring? Yeah, good old-fashioned uh, particle colliding, right? So we, we accelerate using magnets, ordinary particles of matter, mm -hmm. um, and then like protons, and we smash them into stuff, and some muons come out, and we grab those and with, again, magnetic fields, throw them into our G-2 ring, and uh, we do kind of cheat in the sense that I said before that these things disappear at a millionth of a second. But because of special relativity, Einstein's uh, 1905 theory, if you get things moving at, high, at speeds close to speed of light, time passes differently for them. So they actually live a little longer or actually a lot longer in this case. So you, you, you put these muons into, the, uh, into this ring and um, they have magnetic moments, right? And right. so let's, let's first talk about the concept of magnetic moment because one of the things I'm I'm very curious about is like, there's a lot of discussion about how calculating the magnetic moment for a muon, there's a lot of uncertainty built into it. And that's where this whole discovery kind of comes from is that there's this uncertainty in the magnetic, calculating the magnetic moment uh, of the muon, but not so much for calculating the magnetic moment of an electron. So I, I want to, uh, and this is one of the things that like no, uh, none of the articles seem to really touch on that has confused me. So maybe you can break it down. Um, and, and I think a lot of things will, uh, this will help people kind of get things more clear in their head. So you, if you put a, an electron in one of these rings, what is the difference between the muon and the electron that makes the calculation so much more uh, rigorous? Well, if you put any kind of particle in this with a magnetic moment, you could measure how how often it spins like a top, and and you you can measure this number. It's you know not unique to a muon, um, and and people do experiments like this with electrons. They're a little bit different, but you can measure the electric magnetic ele electrons magnetic moment, mm -hmm. um, and you can also calculate it. And let me let me tell you what I mean by calculate it. Okay, so 
if the only thing that happened to a muon or whatever as it traveled through this was photons that make up that magnetic field come and interact with it directly, then you could calculate the magnet, what the magnetic moment should be. And in terms of this quantity called the G factor, it would be exactly two. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we call this thing we're measuring G minus two because we're measuring the, the difference between the thing that's out there in nature and this theoretical prediction. Right. So what makes this number be slightly different from two is that it's not just a matter of the muon directly interacting with the photon, but a whole variety of other particles that can kind of spontaneously come into existence through the weird laws of quantum field theory Mm -hmm. and um, impact that interaction. So in the standard model, for example, you could have a muon travel through space, spontaneously transform into a neutrino and a particle called a W boson. Mm -hmm. That W boson interacts with the photon in the magnetic field. And then the W boson and the neutrino recombine to make a muon again. That's a very rare process. It doesn't happen all the time, but it slightly changes the muon's magnetic moment. Okay. So, uh, okay. I didn't realize, maybe I'm getting something wrong here and clear this up for me. Um, Whenever I talk to, you know, people who do particle physics, it's normally just me um, you know, looking dumb for an hour. So let's continue on that, uh, on that vein. Um, is the, is the muon as it travels, um, like it, I keep hearing the word interact. Can you break down interact? That is it. So a, a particle spontaneously, uh, is created. It's, it's particle and it's antiparticle pair, right? On such a subatomic scale. And the muon is just navigating this tube on such small scales. And there's a, a particle antiparticle pair that's manufactured, um, through the weird, laws of quantum field theory, as you mentioned. And now what happens exactly at that moment between the muon and this particle antiparticle pair? And maybe you just said that, um, but can you repeat just so it's clear? Yeah. So I think you're getting hung up because quantum physics is weirder than any, we don't have language that describes the weirdness of quantum physics very well. So let's, let's break it down to something like you encounter in, uh, you know, uh, undergrad quantum mechanics class or something. Sure. You, you'll yep. talk about like a double slit experiment. Yep. And for your listeners, the idea is you have a sheet with two slits in it. You fire some particles at that. And then those act as waves interfering with each other. And it makes this pattern of bright, dark, bright, dark, bright, dark on the far screen. Well, the weird thing, in my opinion, the weird thing is that if you do this one particle at a time, you still get the interference pattern. Right. And that means that it doesn't really make sense to say the particle I fired this time went through the left slit and hit the, sh- hit the screen or it went through the right slit and hit the screen because mm-hmm. you wouldn't get an interference pattern if that were true. Right. That particle went through both slits in some sort of complicated way and it interfered with itself through the weirdness of quantum mechanics. Right. So if we're talking about what a muon's doing in the presence of this magnetic field, it would be, you know, not strictly true if I said, well, it interacted with this kind of particle and these things were created and then this happened, whatever. That's not, that's like saying it went through the left slit. Right. It does all of the things that are possible according to the laws of physics. Mm-hmm. All of those things interfere with each other. And in the end, if you take all that into, calc- in, into, into account in your calculation, right, 
you can calculate what the probability of observing any outcome is. Okay. Now this is the like, okay. So this, that's a really good, so it's, it's the issue is that the, I guess the word interfere or interact rather um, it's, it's implies that there is um, I guess it implies there's duality. Um, One thing is uh, interacting with one other thing. And I'm not quite sure that captures the complexity of, of what's happening. Um, So as this muon travels about um, there are particles and antiparticles made of a very well, like a a very well-known subset of particles in the standard model that can be spontaneously produced uh, in the muon's way, if you will. Is that true? I wouldn't even say in the way, like, um, in the example I gave before, the muon itself transforms into these right. other kinds of particles for a tiny, tiny fraction of a, of a moment. Um, it could also be that that muon travels along and then like radiates off an additional particle while staying a muon right. and then reabsorbs it an instant later. Yeah. These are all the sorts of things you have to, to account for. All of these things can and do happen. Um, they make up kind of the rich many faceted or multifaceted quantum reality that this muon's experiencing. And, and to do this calculation, so I'm, I'm describing a couple of what we call one loop diagrams. Yep. So they're, they're the simplest kind of correction mm-hmm. to the G factor. But then to get this really right, you need to include the diagrams with two loops yep. and you have to include them with three loops and, and really as many loops as you can. But we've got the technology right now to do a good calculation up to about three loops it's really hard. It's heroic that these theoretical physicists have been able to do it, but you know, they get like one part in a billion precision on these sorts of calculations. And that's comparable to the precision that they can actually measure at this experiment. And in the end, the interesting thing is that theoretical calculation is different. The result is different from what they measure. And that seems to suggest that there's some particles going through these complicated loops of quantum physics that we don't know about yet. There's new laws of physics here, new forms of matter and energy, new forces, new something that's tweaking this very precisely measured quantity in a measurable way. Okay, cool. So, so let me put this, I guess, in the, in the way I would think of it as an, as an astrophysicist, as opposed to the, the particle physicist is, I'm imagining there's a giant um, a sum in front of me, you know, a, a mathematical summation. And, and the summation is in essence this, the muon is traveling and, and there is a probability predicted by the standard model that a certain thing could happen to the muon. Um, give it a, it transforms into something or it emits something, what, what have you. And um, there are many ways uh, described by these diagrams you're talking about, many ways that we know a muon could exchange a particle, turn into a particle and back into a muon, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there are many things we know could happen. And we say, okay, sim, uh, you know, uh, the, what is the word I'm looking for here? Why do I always forget words when I'm riffing? What is going on in my world? Scenario one, right? You have scenario one. This is, this has a certain likelihood of happening. Scenario two, certain likelihood of happening, plus scenario three, certain likelihood. And then you, you go down the line and there's 10,000 scenarios or however many scenarios there's, I'm not sure. Um, and you say, here's all the scenarios that could happen. Here's the probability. And this is where I think I also get hung up. Here's the probability that they can happen. So if we want to simplify things, we could say there's a 10% chance uh, scenario one will happen, a 10% chance scenario two will happen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you go all the way up to 100, right? And so, and so you, you kind of make the assumption that as the muon travels about the ring, 
Um, we know the probability of each scenario happening. And then when we get to the end, we should be able to figure out how uh, perturbed that magnetic moment is. Is that the uh, is that sort of the the boilerplate idea? Did I get that right? Yeah, that, that's a pretty good description of it. Um, okay. a, a couple of small tweaks mm-hmm. is these probabilities you can't just add up because they interfere with each other. Right. So some things actually cancel out probabilities of other things right. and whatever. And also you should think about a muon in the presence of this magnetic field as interacting with photons over and over and over again. Yes. So you end up with this kind of average net amount of interaction mm-hmm. as it travels through at a time. It's not like it all interacts all at once. It's like it does a very, very large number of very, very small interactions. Yes. Yeah, yeah, the summation thing was purely to, to make my life uh, simpler. Um, Good. And, and so, okay, so now now I feel like we're getting somewhere, and I guess I'm getting somewhere in, in my own uh, understanding of this. And you say right now, now I imagine because of the, the way that uh, if scenario one happens, maybe scenario two is barred from happening or can't happen, or uh, the probability of it happening is lessened, these sorts of things. And this becomes a very complex calculation to do on a computer, right? Um, and I imagine these calculations are being done on supercomputers where you simulate a muon goes through a ring and probability of scenario one and scenario two and scenario three. And you calculate and you say, OK, the average muon should be perturbed from its G value of two or not. It's, is it called a G factor of two? G factor is good. Yeah. OK, so um, on average, every muon we put through should be perturbed by a certain, uh, uh, is, it, is it referred to as an anomalous magnetic moment? Is that what Yeah, yeah. Right? The difference from two is the anomalous. Okay. Magnet. So it, that's, that's kind of the, the concept then. The concept is, um, you know, the standard model predicts that certain scenarios can happen. And thus we calculate how perturbed the average muon should be, how and not how the, the value of its anomalous magnetic moment, how perturbed it is from the actual magnetic moment. And then in experiments, we send muons through. And that's not the value. The value we predict is not the value we see, right? Just very slightly different. Yes. And so now let's talk about the implications for that. And first, I want to bring up one issue that's at the forefront of my brain. And I want you to tell me, because I imagine it's been thought about by many people smarter than me and also calculated. Um, There are, you say right now we're able to get to, uh, I guess, three, um, I I forget the terminology. Three loops. Three loops. Okay. Why not four? Why not five? Why not six? I imagine it's because there's complexity. Yeah. Are you and volunteering to do these calculations? Oh, no. no. <laughs> Me I'm neither. Not, yeah, I'm not volunteering to do the first one, okay? The one where you just got to draw like a photon and a W boson or something. I don't even want that one in my life. So um, so anyway, th- these calculations are presumably tough, uh, computationally time-consuming. Um, but I assume an estimate has been made um, – and I assume this has been discussed that this four, four loop, five loop, six loop scenario cannot possibly uh, perturb the magnetic anom- uh, the anomalous magnetic moment to the degree of which we see it perturbed. Is that is that the idea? Yeah, okay. yeah. E- each of these loop levels is less important than the one that came before it. Mm-hmm. So the what we call the tree level one, the one without any loops, gave us two. Mm-hmm. The one with including the extra one loop diagrams change that answer by about 0.1%. Mm-hmm. The next one 
by something like 0.1% squared and the next one by 0.1% cubed. So each one gets, you know, much less important than the level before it. Yeah. So the the cool implication of all this and the thing that gets you so giddy then, um, and I shouldn't say it's an implication as if it's the only implication, because we'll talk about multiple ways uh, that this could be um, uh, coming up in results. But the interesting implication and the the one that there's a lot of focus on is the idea that the muon is interacting or or rather undergoing loops, undergoing scenarios, if I've described them before, that the standard model cannot or currently does not account for, which is where the, is that where like the real interesting aspect comes? So it's like, there's some loops happening, maybe with some particles that we don't even know exist that are perturbing the, uh, the magnetic moment in such a way um, that's indicating there's new physics out there's new particles there's new things we haven't discovered that is exactly why we're excited about this yes good so let's talk about um number one can we look at the amount the the anomalous magnetic moment the amount that it's been perturbed and can we make any calculations uh from the theory side of things where, where you work can we say the magnetic moment should be this, it, it's actually th- this, as we observe it in the G minus two experiment. Therefore, there's like a, uh, the way I think of it is in, you can correct my language here, but there's a like a gap in energy. There's like a certain amount of things that could perturb it this way. There's maybe particles with specific masses or energies, or is there any work done into understanding mass gaps, uh, energy gaps, that sort of thing? Yeah, I think so for to give you an idea of how much work has gone into this. Well, there are many hundreds of papers written by theorists in the literature on this already. But the day after this announcement, there were another, I don't know, 40 or something on the preprint archive. Oh, and oh. in the next week, there'll be another couple hundred. Like This is something a lot of people have put a lot of thought and effort into. We, we have a lot of ideas. Um, and it all depends on what kind of particles we're talking about what their masses are, what their interactions are like. Um, but if you know those things, you can calculate how it should change the muon's magnetic moment. Um, one thing I've worked on are rather, rather light force carrying particles, like light, what we call gauge bosons. Mm-hmm. These can do the job. Um, they really have to couple more to muons than other things. Otherwise we would have seen them by now, but yeah. that's possible. You can also do it in theories like supersymmetry, which particle physicists like for a lot of them, a lot of us like for a lot of different reasons. Mm-hmm. But if you had um, particles called muons, the supersymmetric partner of the muon, and um, and particles called gauginos, and these things were several hundred GeV, and certain choices in the theory were made right, loops of those particles could give you the sort of uh, result that we're seeing now. So. Those are just a couple of ideas, but there's a fairly long list of, of ideas out there. Mm-hmm. And um, the thing that makes us so so excited is, is this starts to look like what things should look like if the standard model isn't complete. Right. And if we're just starting to be able to see the effects of the particles beyond the standard model for mm-hmm. the first time. Yeah. So that that is the that is an option, right? And um, we can come back to exploring that option because I'm really curious if, um, you know, of the the 47, I think, was it 47 papers that got put up on? Uh, right? I can't remember, but it yeah. w- I, I, I remember 30 something, but, it, you know, probably depends exactly how you, what, what you count, count as a paper on G minus two. Um, 
but it, w- w- you know, we'll, we'll swing back to that in a second. Uh, but, but before we do that, I saw a, a tweet um, by um, one Matthew Buckley, Dr. Matthew Buckley out of Rutgers. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but I saw oh, you. Like, he, he, Matt, Matt and I've written a lot of papers together. Okay. So I, uh, you know, I saw this tweet and I, and you know, it kind of was in line with all of my thinking as I'm reading all these papers and, and, um, and, and then I saw that you also had liked the tweet. So, I, you know, we did a little bit of creeping before the show, a little bit of, uh, you know, investigative journalism to go through your likes, if we will. <laughs> but I think it's, um, I think this tweet is important. And I think we should, uh, I would like for you to explain it because I think it's, um, it's a good tweet. So um, the, the tweet goes, last week, we had three possibilities for the muon G minus two anomaly. Um, and these three are, uh, and he, these are his words, not mine. Okay. Also mine, but also his experimental fuck up th- theoretical fuck up or new physics. Okay. So we'll circle back to the new physics, but I, let's talk about the experimental fuck up. All right. If there could be one. So um, let, let me jump in. So I actually have my notes here from my own podcast with Shalma and yeah. I wrote almost exactly the same thing down, but I wrote four possibilities, the same three that Matt mentioned plus statistical fluke. So I had, I had four yeah. different possibilities on my list, but other than that, I entirely agree with Matt. I'm sure yeah. he would consider the statistical fluke a possibility. Too. Okay. I do, I do want to talk about the statistical fluke too, because I, I, we're going to cover that. So let's cover that one as well. Um, I feel like that could maybe be wrapped up in theoretical. Nah, maybe not. I don't know. Experiment. Who knows? But anyway, ex- experimentally, this, uh, this detector, I don't know if the detect, it's not detector. What's like experiment experiment. It just doesn't feel right. You know, it's like there's telescopes and then in part, there's just like, you know, a collider. I don't know. I'd really like a better word than experiment, but, um, okay. So the, the G minus two experiment, it was used at Brookhaven, um, in the nineties, right? And well, the magnet was, it's, I mean, it's a different apparatus, but the magnet itself was used in both experiments. Okay. So the magnet was used in both experiments and, and back then they found a, a similar, uh, a similar result. Is that correct? That's right. And that was a, what, 2000, 2001, something of the, the sort. I thought it was 2002, but yeah, right around that. Yeah. Something. Um, so early 2000s, you have this result from Brookhaven and then you ship the magnet to Fermi, to Fermilab where you're at. And, um, and you get very similar results, not identical results, but very similar results. Um, a lot of people have, have questioned whether or not there is an issue, uh, with the, say the, the hardware itself, is that been thoroughly investigated and been? Yeah, I think that's entirely unfounded. Um, there are plenty of things to worry about here. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to be a blind loyalist to this has to be new physics. It has to be whatever, but that is not the thing to worry about. So okay. you have you have this magnet, you actually measure the magnetic field it's producing. Mm-hmm. That's what matters. Right. Um, the, you know, this stuff has been scrutinized in and out in a million different ways. Um, there, there are plenty of things to worry about. I'm not worried about the fact they use the same magnet. Okay, good. So there, unf- I'll, I'll tell people they're unfounded when they bring, I haven't seen many people mentioning it. But I have seen it. Uh, I have seen it sort of floated around, and and I've seen it floated around by enough people who I would consider to be, um, I, I guess, influential in this field, in the particle physics field, that it made me think maybe it's worth asking Dan about. It hasn't been, you know, just random commenters on uh, Ethan. Yeah, I, I've seen it too. I, I, I just that that to me is not even in my top thirty concerns. Okay, so th- theoretical. Now, what does it mean that the th- theory could be, or the, there could be a theoretical uh, uh, screw up here. What does that mean? 
Yeah. So this is a very, very hard theory calculation, namely calculating what the magnetic moment of the muon should be if the standard model is the whole theory of nature. Yeah. And different groups get different answers. Mm -hmm. Um, When we say that this disagrees, we're using some averaging of those groups or some particular choice of those groups or something. Mm -hmm. But everyone will agree that no one's sure exactly what this number should be. Okay. And um, there are some people and and some very reasonable people who will say, I'm not sure that the true value, true true standard model prediction value isn't consistent with what we measured at Fermi Lab. Mm -hmm. And that's the sort of thing that that to me is the main thing to worry about. I'm not worried about the experiments anymore. I'm not worried about the statistics anymore. I'm worried about the theory calculation. Okay. And um, fortunately, a lot of very talented and very smart people are thinking about this mm-hmm. and they're making progress. We know more than we did a year ago. We certainly know more than we did 10 years ago. We certainly know more than we did when Brookhaven made their measurement back in the early 2000s. Uh, back then, a lot of problems were discovered with the, uh, with the theory calculation, you know, mm-hmm. sign errors and stuff were say, being corrected. I remember reading that there was a mi- like a minus sign error in some of the original calculations. Yeah. Yeah. If I remember that the two separate groups did this calculation, the, the light by light scattering mm-hmm. amplitude, and they both got the wrong sign out front. So they didn't catch it because, you know, you, you, when two independent groups do something, get the same answer, you, Right. You feel pretty secure about it. So, but but all that stuff has been sorted out. Like people have scrutinized this thoroughly. The the low hanging fruit has all been eaten. What's left are the really hard parts of the calculation. And um, like I said, progress is being made. This will not remain an open question indefinitely. Um, one one way that people are approaching this sort of problem is uh, doing simulations of the quarks and gluons in these loops. Um, using a technique called lattice QCD. Um, these are kind of new techniques, at least uh, in the sense that uh, they're, they're getting good enough to really give us reliable answers about this stuff. And it would shock me if a few years from now, we didn't have like a much more reliable version of that calculation to rely on. Okay. So the, you, so let's talk then about the statistical uh, the number four for you before we get into new physics, because there's some, you know, interesting things to cover in new physics, but the statistical thing interests me because, um, so if you took, I assume how many mu, do you know how many muons are, are spun around, uh, this ring in like a given day or hour or like whatever. With a given moment, there are several thousand. Okay. And I, and each of these muons, if analyzed, um, by themselves might give you uh, a wildly different answer than the aggregate, right? Yeah, you wouldn't learn very much by measuring only one muon. Right. So um, where does the statistical problem lie or potential statistical problem lie uh, in your opinion on, on this? So I, basically, I don't think there is one. Okay. So, I mean, I think, so, so let's, let's just, uh, let me explain what the collaboration claims their statistical significance is. Mm-hmm. So if you take their result, um, it's, I think was 3.3 standard deviations detection. Mm-hmm. Brookhaven's previous measurement, if memory serves was 3.7 uh, standard deviations of detection. If you combine those, you get to 4.24 standard deviations. Mm-hmm. The odds that you would get that much discrepancy from the standard model prediction by pure chance 
by just like, you know, bad luck basically mm-hmm. is one in 40,000. Right. I, for one, do not live my life worrying about things that are unlikely at the one in 40,000 level. If, if I were, if I were constantly questioning my confidence and things that were, you know, possible at the one in 40,000 level, um, I would never be sure I was awake. Yeah. Because well, well, more. Yeah. Okay. Welcome to my world. I'm constantly questioning shit at one. Is, you know, my brain in a vat, uh, you know, or, or you know, is yeah. this just another dream I'm having? And, uh, you know, right. um, you know, there's no way, there's no way, um, any, any human being could really function in the world if they didn't accept things as true that have a one in 40,000 chance of being wrong. Right. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. Uh, you know, some of the things that like, this is so weird being an astronomer for as long as I've been one, which isn't very long has made me think about like everything, literally everything in like the way, like an MCMC uh, type of, um, you know, sort of methodology. And, and what I mean by that is like, if you look at a given, um, you know, Monte Carlo uh, analysis of something, um, you could find, and again, it's very unlikely, but you could find that um, with, with a small subset of data, you get very differing results from what you expect and with more data that goes away. And so I noticed that, and I shouldn't like play off the detection. I think the one in 40,000 thing is important. And I, I think I, I shouldn't say I think as if I have any like authority on this matter. Um, I do agree with you uh, that it, that I doubt this is a statistical thing, but I think it's worth mentioning because I do see people talking about it. I think you, that only 6% of the data has been analyzed, right? And there is going to be much more, um, much more analysis done as, as the experiment runs longer. Um, so can you just address that quick? You don't expect the result to change at all with the other 94% of data coming in. Well, so, I mean, we will become even more confident. Yes. And uh, the measurement that it will provide of this magnetic moment will get more and more precise. Um, so the, the announcement from Wednesday was just based on the data from what they call run one of the experiment. Mm -hmm. If I understand correctly, run two and run three have already been conducted. That data just has to be analyzed. Yeah. And run four is ongoing now. Mm -hmm. So every time you add more data, every time you do a new run, the error bars are going to get smaller. The measurement's going to get more precise. So if you're uncomfortable with 4.24 Sigma and you want it to be five, six or seven or something, give it a little time, you know, that will happen. Okay. Um, yeah. So, you know, we're, they're not done yet by any means. And I'm glad, I'm glad they're going to collect this extra data. Um, and, and also I think they'll understand their systematic uncertainties better in the, in, in the time ahead by a little bit, you know, modest improvements there too. Um, but yeah, we're, we're going to learn more as this experiment continues in the months and years ahead. Okay. So then uh, of all the people like sort of saying that, um, all the people putting the caveat next to new physics, what do you think that the most important caveat to put next to new physics is? If you're going to say, yeah, number one is there's new physics. What is number 1.1? Like, what is the thing that everyone else should also be thinking about? Or yeah, the, the theory calculation that okay. there might be, might be problems with the theory calculation. That to me is the, that and new physics are the, you know, overwhelmingly likely pair of, of, yeah. uh, of uh, explanations. You might not know this because this is a maybe an unfair question. 
But do you know if any of the, you know, I, I know a lot of different groups are calculating this and, and you're kind of aggregating results on the theory side of things. Do you know if any of the, if any of the theoretical predictions are in line with what was actually found? Like, is there a, is there a case to be made that maybe like one of the, one of the theory groups is doing something that others aren't and getting an answer closer to the experimental result? And um, is there anything like that going on? Yeah. So the, the one that everyone's talking about is this group of uh, very serious physicists doing these sorts of calculations. They go by the name BMW. I forget what it stands for. It's an acronym of some kind. And, um, and this group has an estimate for the standard model prediction that it's not at the value that was measured, but it's significantly closer. Mm-hmm. The error bars are pretty big. And, um, you know, it's hard to know what to make of it. It doesn't make the, you know, discrepancy go away. Right. But it takes down the statistical significance quite a bit mm-hmm. if you if you think that they're exactly right. Um, and, you know, I think that will be scrutinized. To, it is being scrutinized to a very, you know, uh, strong degree. Yeah. And, um, you know, we're going to we're going to find out what the right answer is. I, you know, I'm, I'm confident that this, this is not a, a, the sort of question that can't be answered. This is a question that, you know, it's, it's going to be a lot of brute force, a lot of human hours, a lot of, you know, perspiration and, uh, in, 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 you know, intellect and computing mm-hmm. resources, but we'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah. So now, uh, you know, specifically from your side of things, are you interested in this, uh, the difference in this anomalous magnetic moment meaning something important to you? Are you in the process of looking into this writing papers on a particular thing that you want to talk about, or maybe you don't want to give anyone else ideas? What's the deal? No, I mean, I definitely am. I mean, I do physics because I want to learn about new laws of physics. Mm-hmm. And this is, a, you know, more likely than just about anything I've seen in a long time to, you know, be an insight into new laws of physics. Um, I've written papers before that talk about the Brookhaven result and what might cause it. Um, I've written papers uh, about supersymmetry in this context, about light forces in this context, about other things. Um, I do have a project um, in very early phases um, with a student at the University of Chicago where we're thinking about how to maybe connect this to certain models of dark matter. That's what I was going um, to ask about. I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Um, if there are constraints that could be made and then, you know, sort of matched up with the theoretical predictions of the likely masses of, of dark matter particles. Um, I mean, you, you can do, play games like that. I would say that we don't have enough information now to, uh, you know, give us a strong indication of if there's a connection between dark matter and this, but there could be, I can definitely write down, Theories like okay, let let's say I use this the supersymmetry explanation, and I have my smuons and gauginos in these in these loops causing this the the muons magnetic moment to be different from the standard models. Well, in a theory like that, there'll be some particle that is the lightest of the new superparticles, and it could be a good candidate for dark matter. And I can work out in light of this new information, what class of theories that might look like and how we might look for it in different kinds of experiments, how it might have been created in the early universe. Like that's something you can definitely do. In fact, lots of people have done it. Mm-hmm. You could also say, well, maybe I don't think it's supersymmetry. Maybe I think it's a new uh, new force that 
is uh, couples or more, interacts more strongly with muons and other kinds of particles. Could I write down dark matter theories that interact through that force? And the answer is, yeah, you can. Mm -hmm. um, but does that give me confidence? Either of those things are the right answer. No, but it makes me more likely to want to spend time thinking about theories like that. Okay. So wh what do you think is the path is the path forward then? Are a lot of the, the papers that are sort of being, um, that are being put out on like, this is new physics. Here's what the new physics is. It's a, we propose it's a, you know, a, whatever, uh, insert part of graviton, if you will. Is there then a suggestion about here's how we go test if, if, um, you know, if the muon is interacting with this particular thing, uh, are a lot of the papers putting that out there and like, what's the future for this? Are we going to smash muons together? Or like what, what's, where do we go? So I'll be honest. I haven't gone and read a whole lot of these new papers this week. Um, it's just yeah. a, a flood and, and like, you know, so I don't know what they all say, but I, my guess is that the strong majority of them, do say, here's a, an example of something that could cause this. Here's how it might be connected to other problems that we've been thinking about. And here are experiments that in the future could test them. That, that is like a pretty standard boilerplate formula for a particle pheno paper. And th these would be no exception. And most of the ideas that people have written down that are capable of accounting for the muon's magnetic moment are also testable by other means. So these supersymmetry models, I think the high luminosity run of the Large Hadron Collider should be able to, to, to detect the particles responsible if, if they're there. Um, these light force carriers I'm talking about, there are all sorts of low energy, what we call fixed target experiments that should be able to test that. Um, these are not the sort of things like string theory or something where, you know, we'll just have to wonder for, you know, generations to come, whether, whether this is the right answer or not. These are things we know how to conduct experiments uh, to test. And, uh, you know, one of the most important things about this result, if it passes muster with the theorists, and, and in the end, we're really sure it's a, it is a departure from the standard model, is that it will give us a relatively short list of places to look for new physics. Mm -hmm. And we'll know it's got to be one of these. Yeah. Because there aren't that many ways to do this. And we will conduct experiments to check all those ways. And when we're done, I think the odds, you know, look pretty encouraging that we'll discover some new force or some new kinds of matter, some new interaction that isn't contained in the standard model, something we don't know about yet. Yeah. Were you starting to get worried that there was no new physics before this? Or is it where well, you worried that we're at the end of the line, the standard models? Uh, and I say that jokingly, but also like seriously. Well, so deep down, I don't think there's any chance this could be true. After all, there's dark matter. Mm -hmm. There's dark energy. There's inflation. There's matter being more abundant than antimatter. There's neutrino masses. Mm -hmm. All of those things, there's quantum gravity. All of those things tell us the standard model is incomplete, but it's conceivable that all of the things that all those things are resolved at, you know, by particles that are so heavy mm -hmm. that we'll never observe them in any conceivable experiment. Yeah. So we call this, uh, this, this kind of scenario, uh, scenarios with a desert. Mm -hmm. So the idea is there's, you know, particle after particle after particle at low energies, and then they stop. And there's many, many orders of magnitude and mass. 
And then there are other particles that we don't have any access to. That is the, you know, nightmare scenario that, that I might worry about. And if G minus two is really indications of new physics, as I'm optimistic, it very well could be, then there's no desert. Then there's new physics to discover within the reach of, you know, practical uh, experiments that we can do with existing technology. Yeah. Now, last time, uh, you know, I, I didn't even think about this, but I have your book setting here. And last time you were on, we talked at length about paradigm shifts. Okay. So now I'm really curious about how, about your, you know, we talked the last time and, and, and I, I don't know if this is a conclusion necessary, if you call it a conclusion, but we kind of, I got the sense we both agreed that, um, a paradigm shift is going to be necessary to answer some of these open questions that our modern physics is not answering. Do you call it, first off, do you agree with me? I, I think there are doesn't... good indications that that's true. Okay. But like, you know, the, 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 you know, the premise of my book is this starts to look like what fe things feel like leading up to a paradigm shift. But then again, you can't, like in principle, ever predict a paradigm yeah. shift or you right. or it happened already. Mm -hmm. But that, that's why I, you, you, so, okay. I love how you, uh, like a true physicist, you sort of spoke in like a statistical way. You know what I mean? You're like, there's an 80% chance I agree with you, Brendan, <laughs> but there's also the 20, I, I don't. So um, th this experiment's interesting because I wouldn't call this a paradigm shift. I would call this like a, I, I don't want to call it mundane by any means, but it, I will, I'll use that term, but I don't mean it in the true sense. I would call this a rather mundane exploration of, of particle physics. And yet we are getting indications that there's new physics out there. Does that give you hope that like, we're not going to need the next Einstein and that, you know, there are, the answers are on the horizon for a lot of these questions. Well, so I think it's too early to know where this goes. Mm -hmm. um, it could be that we discover one or more new particles and we figure out how to extend the spanner model to include it. And there really aren't any paradigm shifting elements. There's additions, there's expansions, whatever, but um, basically all of our fundamental ideas about matter, energy, space, and time remain intact. Yeah. Or it may be that we discover some things. They don't behave the way or act the way that we have traditionally thought about matter, energy, space, and time. And um, this is leads us down a road that historians of science 100 years from now will look back and say, that's how the paradigm shift started. After all, in 1905, when Einstein was, you know, starting to think about the photoelectric effect and how, you know, light might interact on metal plates or something, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I don't think when he started that exploration, did he go, this is going to totally rewrite Right. everything we thought we knew about physics. Right. Yeah. You know, it, it got there. It, that's where it wound up with quantum mechanics, but that's not what it looks like at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I, I, yeah, I think these are very like, uh, no, no physicist today. Here's the, here's the interesting, you know, aspect of like sort of scientific, uh, I don't know what the, what the, what the philosophy of science, I guess, is that there's no one alive today who's practicing astronomy and physics, who knows what a paradigm shift in, in astronomy and physics looks like. And, you know, I'm interested in the idea of if we even romanticize these ideas in retrospect, and and we tend to look at like the, the Einsteinian years as this huge shift in our understanding of the universe. And we, d we don't tend to look at the fact that like maybe through the late, uh, you know, uh, 1800s, that maybe 
a lot of these ideas were already being floated by many people. And it was rather, it was a kind of a progressive um, happenstance and not so much an overnight thing. So um, it's interesting because we might be living in what might be looked at as a paradigm shift. You know, if this experiment ends up being new physics and then we explore the new physics and then we find new particles, dark matter, whatever, what have you, it might be looked at in retrospect as like a huge paradigm shift a huge new gap in understanding all of a sudden. But in our time here, it's like, eh, we're just going about our lives and look, we found some cool shit. Yeah. I, I don't think it's easy. Well, so first of all, it like, there's not a, always a clear cut distinction between paradigm shifts and incremental science. Right. Of course there, there are sometimes things that you could debate whether they, you know, are big enough a change to be a, a paradigm shift. Also, like they don't happen in some instantaneous moment, right? Uh, you know, like you were saying, things build up and 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 and, and they, they build up until pretty dramatic sudden change mm-hmm. has to respond. At least that's the you know Kuhnian perspective or, yeah. or you know viewpoint on this. Um, and I, I think there's at least some some reason to think that yeah. uh, is a good description of things. So um, my hope. My aspiration as a physicist is that I will get to be there and be a participant in the next paradigm shift. I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know when it's going to come and it might not come in my lifetime. I don't know. But if I have, could have my druthers and I could have things play out the way that I want to maximize my personal enjoyment of the rest of my life, I want to be there as the next quantum mechanics or relativity or whatever plays out uh, where we throw away much of what we thought we knew about the universe and replace it with something I can't even imagine now. That's what I want to see happen. Well, with that being said, I think that's a good way to, to cut it off. I asked for 20 minutes of your time. You gave me an over an hour. So I appreciate it. We, we were just kind of riffing and I didn't even notice an hour went by. So it's always fun. Yes. I appreciate you. I uh, appreciate you doing it. And we'll, uh, we'll cease the recording now. All right. Dan, thanks. Uh, here, that was good. Go ahead stop recording. Thanks for listening. I appreciate you guys tuning in. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Hope you learned something. Uh, I always enjoy talking to, you know, particle physics-y people because I don't know what's going on as much as you don't know what's going on, but I hope I'm a good arbiter of information. I hope I can, uh, you know, probe these people um, at a rate that we can both leave the conversation with some understanding. So in this case, I think we did. In this case, this is super exciting, um, you know, new potentially new physics going on. And um, we'll be checking in on this experiment as new results come in. You know, it's possible this uh, this this G-2 gap closes and there's no nothing interesting here. Um, but as Dan Hooper said, that the chances of that happening are like 1 in 40,000 right now. So check out the Patreon, check out the PayPal. Uh, if you want to support the show in any way, you can do it through those platforms. We got a premium episode um, coming out this weekend or early next week um in addition to an episode with seti superstar seth showstack um we'll be doing a premium episode on this ufo news so the pentagon's releasing all this interesting ufo stuff and it's very odd and aliens are everyone on twitter thinks aliens exist and it's fun okay it's fun and we're gonna discuss it all we're gonna discuss what we know what we don't know and whether there's aliens uh you know flying around the planet trying to uh to i don't know break in your house at night or something we'll talk all about it so with that being said go go check that out subscribe to the youtube this episode will be up on youtube with a video if you're into video why am i telling you that after you've already listened you've already listened on the audio 
or the YouTube. So why am I telling you that there's video on the YouTube? So you can go watch it again? Maybe you want to go watch it again. This is kind of an episode you want to kind of watch again, huh? So go do that. If you watched on the audio, go watch on the video now. Go watch on the video now, because that's what I want you to do. I want you to, from now on, watch every episode twice. And before you go, you can't expect me to forget the most important thing to tell you, which is that we both know, we all know, if you're listening to this in a group of people, like a weirdo, uh, you, everyone listening in your group, knows that this is a grade A podcast. And grade A podcasts get five-star ratings. And that's why you're going to go right now on Apple Podcasts if you're listening there. And if you're not listening there, you're going to throw your phone away because it's old. All right. If you're not using Apple Podcasts, you clearly don't know how to work technology and you need to put your phone in the trash can. Now, if you are using Apple Podcasts, you need to go on Apple Podcasts and rate the show five stars and leave a review that says grade A. This is a grade A podcast. All right. I know you might not want to think for yourself. You might want to say, Brendan, I want to, I don't want to come up with a clever review. I don't want to, you know, think about what's good and bad pros and cons of the show. And I'm going to f- fix that issue for you. You, the way you get around that problem is you write, this is a grade A podcast, and you hit the five-star button, and you never think about it again. So go do that. 